Welcome to the Cancer Care Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training, Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Dee Tamara. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. And this program today focuses on diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL, updates. And today's program is a collaborative effort, um, and we are delighted to have so many of you on the call today. We have over 204 participants on the call today who come from both um, all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, Egypt, Norway, United Kingdom, so really it's a bit of a global call as well. And today's program is supported by Novartis Oncology, Pharmacyclix LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen um, Scientific Affairs, LLC, and an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo. And I'd really like to thank them for their support of this program today. Um, now, um, we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And, um, you know, I'm just delighted that all of you are on the call today. You're clearly a group of information seekers wanting to get more information. And now it's really my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Catherine S.M. Diefenbach. And Dr. Diefenbach is Associate Professor of Medicine, Translational Director of Hematology, Director Clinical Lymphoma, Perlmutter Cancer Center, and NCI-designated Comprehensive Cancer Center, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Diefenbach will be addressing an overview of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19, Delta, and Omicron, staging and grading, current standard of care, treatment options for resistant disease, emerging treatment approaches, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments to communicate with your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Diefenbach. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm so happy to be here today and to talk to all of you. Again, I'm Dr. Catherine Diefenbach from the NYU Perlmutter Cancer Center. I'm here to talk to you about uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19. So first of all, there are over 68 lymphoma types. And diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL, is the most common type of aggressive lymphoma. So B-cell uh, non-Hodgkin lymphomas come in two flavors, aggressive uh, lymphomas, which are treatable and curable with standard chemotherapy, and indolent lymphomas, which are more like a chronic disease and are managed and don't always require treatment. DLBCL is the most common aggressive B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. How do we stage it and grade it? So lymphoma staging, whether it's Hodgkin's or non-Hodgkin's, B or T, is very simple. Stage one is one lymph node group. Stage two is two or more lymph node groups that are on the same side of the diaphragm. It doesn't matter if it's above or below the diaphragm, they both have to be 
on the same side of the diaphragm. You can have five lymph node groups. If they're above the diaphragm, all of them are below the diaphragm, that's stage two. Stage three is lymph node involvement that's on both sides of the diaphragm. Even if it's just two lymph node groups, if one is above and one is below the diaphragm, that's, uh, that's considered stage three disease. And stage four disease is lymphoma that involves any extra lymphatic structure, so bone marrow involvement, spleen involvement, liver involvement, bone involvement. These are, um, these are uh, all uh, marks of stage four disease. Where lymphoma differs from solid tumor is that when we risk stratify DLBCL, stage is only one of five risk factors that we look at in terms of how much chemo to give a patient and um, how, how likelihood it is to be able to cure them. But I think what the really good news is, is that aggressive lymphomas are treatable and potentially curable even in stage four. So whereas very few solid tumors are curable in stage four, many, many diffuse large B-cell lymphomas are curable even in stage four. And a stage is only one of many factors that we use to understand prognosis. Another factor that we look at to um, think about how, um, how to treat and how to risk stratify diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is something that we call the GRADE, and I'll add to that also the molecular subtype. So GRADE um, talks about how aggressive the lymphoma is, and GRADE itself is much more of a, an issue in follicular lymphoma where we basically go from 1 to 3B, whereas 1 is very lazy, 3B is almost like a DLBCL. In DLBCL, it's more the, the molecular subtype and the histologic subtype, the protein and gene expression, that determine how aggressive it is. So, but, but underneath that, one thing we look at is something called the KI67. That's a proliferative rate, and that just tells us how quickly the cells are turning over or proliferating. The higher the proliferative rate, the higher the grade of the lymphoma, the more aggressive the lymphoma. Other things we look at are expression of, uh, of cell surface immune markers, things like BCL2 or BCL6 or MUM1. This tells us uh, which flavor of DLBCL that we're, we're dealing with. There are at least two flavors. One is called activated B cell type and the other germinal center type. And the expression of these markers tells us which bucket the DLBCL fits in. Um, and this matters less for first-line therapy than for uh, therapies for patients who relapse where different subtypes have different response uh, patterns to uh, subsequent treatment. So it does actually, um, it, the, these different buckets speak to the biology of the DLBCLs, and it's important to know just in terms of trying to come up with rational strategies that are going to target not just growing cells but the biology of the cancer to understand um, on a molecular level uh, what's driving the lymphoma. And then we have the most high-grade or aggressive DLBCLs are things called double hit or triple hit, and these are DLBCLs that have mutations in MYC and either uh, BCL2 or BCL6 or BCL2 and BCL6. So that, I think, talks about staging and grading. The standard of care in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is frontline chemotherapy with the anti-CD20 antibody rituximab and CHOP-based chemotherapy. And CHOP-based chemotherapy is for uh, different chemotherapy drugs, cyclophosphamide, oncovin, adriamycin, and prednisone. So it's an antibody with four chemos. 
It's generally given for six cycles once every three weeks. And there's usually a repeat scan to see how you're doing after three or four cycles, at which point most, if not all, of the lymphoma should, uh, have, should be gone and you should be in remission already. There are some caveats to the RCHOP, um, but RCHOP is standard for almost all patients. The first caveat is in December at our national meeting, a big study called the Polaric study read out. And this was the substitution of a new kind of drug called polituzumab, which is basically chemo on a stick. It's an antibody drug conjugate, which uses an antibody antigen um, communication to deliver chemotherapy directly to the tumor cells and not to surrounding cells. So in, in a sense, it's really a Trojan horse. Um, and this uh, new drug, was substituted for vincristine and was equal in toxicity. So the new drug was no more toxic than the old drug, but was better in terms of uh, both progression-free and overall survival. So this may well become a standard of care, particularly for higher-grade DLBCL. Also, in older patients, RCHOP is generally very well tolerated in fit patients up to about 70. And there are fit patients up to about 75 who can tolerate RCHOP. But for patients who are older or who are not fit, there's something called R-mini-CHOP, which is basically just a uh, lower dose version of RCHOP. And that is um, lowering the doses, keeping the same dose of rituxan, but lowering the doses of the chemotherapy agents between, uh, generally between uh, 15 to 50%, depending on the age and fitness of the patient. And if you ask me, the oldest age person that I was able to give our mini chop to, last year I gave it to a 97-year-old woman. She's in remission now for more than a year and doing extremely well and back to her normal baseline. She was 96 when they treated her. So there is no age, if you're fit, that is too old for chemotherapy. While elderly patients cannot get the same dose of chemotherapy as younger patients, the data shows that when elderly patients are treated with curative intense chemotherapy, they do uh, much better than when they are not. And so, um, so this is something where being treated with a lymphoma specialist um, really uh, helps because it's a dynamic understanding of a patient's fitness and the chemotherapy dosing. Treatment options for resistant disease, if you are young and fit, would include chimeric antigen receptor T cells, which is a way to take your body's own immune system out of immune cells out of your body, train them to attack the tumor, and then infuse them back in and have them attack the tumor. Or more chemo, if you can get a remission from second-line chemo and an autologous stem cell transplant. Those are really the only two ways currently that um, are curative for patients with relapse disease. But there are other treatments that um, are very promising, and these include this new anti-CD19 antibody called tafacitumab combined with an immune agent called lenalidomide. For patients who are not transplant candidates because they're not fit enough or old enough, this combination um, of drugs had very long remissions in responding patients. Additionally, another class of immune, very exciting immune drugs called bispecific antibodies basically is an antibody with two arms. One of it attacks the tumor cell, the other attacks the T cell, and it says T cell, here is the tumor cell, eat it. And these drugs actually are also very highly effective in DLBCL, and in fact, um, look at some, look with early data that they are probably, they, they may be superimposable over the CAR T cell data. But these are much uh, easier to deliver. They can be delivered outpatient, they're very well tolerated, and um, can be given to um, um, much older, less fit patients than CAR T cells. 
So um, I think uh, in my last few minutes, I'll talk about um, in the age of COVID. So um, with regard to COVID-19, what I tell my patients is for my vaccinated patients, we've actually published on data that show that patients who are getting monoclonal antibodies to CD20, so rituxan or obinutuzumab, do not have good immunity to vaccination because these vaccines take away all your B cells. And although a few patients may um, boost with the third or fourth vaccination, many patients don't and don't have any antibodies that work well despite multiple vaccinations. And this um, weakness lasts um, um, at least uh, nine months after the last dose of monoclonal antibodies. So what should patients do? Well, we've been testing all of our patients who've gotten rituxan in the last uh, nine months. And for any patients who've been vaccinated but don't have good antibodies, there's an FDA-approved uh, uh, anti-COVID product now called Evushield, which is a monoclonal antibody uh, against COVID, um, which lasts nine months. So you're able to, we treat um, all, it's one, it's a shot in the, in the buttocks. Um, you can go and uh, just get it as an outpatient. Um, my patients have said it's very well tolerated. So we've been screening our patients and treating them as needed with Evushield. Um, if you are on chemotherapy and you um, contract COVID, then you should um, immediately either take Paxlovid, which is the oral antiviral, or come in for um, bispecific antibody therapy because we do consider you to be at higher risk due to the chemotherapy and the, and the um, 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 lymphoma as well. And this includes patients who have low-grade lymphoma who are being monitored because data shows also that their immune systems are not as good at fighting viruses as patients without lymphoma. Finally, telehealth. So telehealth was a huge boon during the pandemic. I still do telehealth with patients who are um, within uh, New York City. Unfortunately, the global telehealth reach that we had has been curtailed by um, payers. So I think most telehealth now is only within the state that you practice in. Um, I think telehealth is wonderful to check on people, uh, see how they're doing um, after, um, after treatment, symptom management, um, small questions that come up. Um, of course, telehealth uh, cannot be a substitution for treatment visits or um, sick visits where you're not feeling well. So I think um, that is my 15 minutes. I will, um, I thank you all for listening and I'll be happy to take questions in the question period. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Diefenbach. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful introduction to this whole program today. It really set the context. Um, wonderfully for today's program, so thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Um, Adolfo Enrique Diaz, and Dr. Diaz is Assistant Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology, Mays Cancer Center, UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Diaz will be addressing the importance of clinical trials, considering participating in clinical trials, how research contributes to your treatment choices and options, managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, <coughs> including technology, list of questions, and discussion of open notes, and scheduling follow-up care appointments, follow-up care and appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Diaz. Thank you, Caroline. Uh, thank you for the opportunity of uh, speaking in this uh, workshop. 
Um, again, I'm a, a hematologist oncologist with focus on lymphoma care and leader of the uh, adult lymphoma program at uh, UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson. Um, so let me start by speaking about the importance of clinical trials and considering participating in uh, available trials. So uh, first of all, clinical trials are part of clinical research and are at the heart of all medical advances, not just DLBCL. Clinical trials look at new ways to prevent, detect, or, or treat disease, you know, in this case, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Those treatments uh, might be new drugs or, or maybe just new combinations of, of drugs. Sometimes we are speaking of new surgical procedures or, or devices or, or uh, maybe new ways to use existing uh, treatments, what we call repurposing. Um, the goal of clinical trials is always, almost always, to determine if a new test or treatment uh, works and is safe. Uh, clinical trials can also look at other aspects of care, such as improving the quality of life, for instance, for people with chronic uh, illnesses, again, in this case, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Um, those trials offer hope for many people and an opportunity to help researchers or investigators to find better treatments for others in the future. Uh, every time, uh, you know, when I when I see patients, they they ask me, you know, what are the benefits of of participating in a clinical trial? Um, I I I can tell you, you know, uh, first of all. Uh, as a patient, you may get a new treatment for, for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma even before it's available to everyone. Um, two, you may, you may uh, play a more active role in, in, your, all, in your own healthcare. Um, three, uh, investigators may provide you with medical care and more frequent uh, health checkups as part uh, of the uh, treatment and as part of you being a participant on, on a clinical trial. Uh, and, and lastly, you may have the chance to help others get a better treatment for lymphoma in the future. Um, moving on to how uh, research contributes to, to treatment options, uh, you know, I, I, I can tell the clinical research information that, that we gathered help pave the way for an improved understanding of disease and uh, illness in the future. Uh, both investigators and also uh, manufacturers uh, are continually making progress on, on new medications that uh, one day will be prescribed to patients, one day will uh, become um, FDA approved uh, for treatment. So uh, through scientific advances, which of course uh, encompass the uh, typical trial and error. Uh, investigators uncover answers to complex diffuse large B-cell lymphoma cases that thousands of, uh, of, of patients uh, face. Um, I can give you a few, a few ways, a few examples um, on, on how clinical research helps to improve uh, the latest uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma treatments. So, uh, one, uh, research helps to generate scientific data. Uh, that's crucial. You know, it is important uh, that the clinical trial data is not just inclusive, 
but representative and encompasses most of the clinical and biological variables of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. I'm saying inclusive, inclusive because um, uh, most of the medications that are uh, FDA approved by now uh, have a major representation of uh, uh, white Americans. And now a, uh, there's, a, there's a major uh, move uh, looking at um, underrepresented minorities to be put on clinical trials. So the data, again, is inclusive and representative of all the population. So you can really extrapolate um, the data to, uh, to a treatment outcome. Um, two, uh, uh, research helps researchers to determine the effectiveness of uh, current uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma therapy. So when we are testing a new medication or a new therapy, um, we, we look into uh, the medications, uh, what we call toxicity profile. We look at the efficacy, we look at the potency, we look at uh, dosages, we look at side effects. Um, that way we, we cover all angles of not just uh, safety, but uh, efficacy on those uh, upcoming therapies. Um, uh, three, research helps by uh, contributing to scientific breakthroughs. Uh, Clinical trials, again, are the testing grounds for future diffuse large B-cell lymphoma therapies that help to improve the management of, of this condition. You know, uh, again, with, with the data that we gathered in clinical trials, uh, we help to better understand uh, not, not just the effects of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma on the body, but what medications offer the best treatment. And of course, as a result, many of today's medical advances in the treatment of DLBCL are the direct result of clinical trials. Uh, lastly, research helps to increase knowledge of disease progression. Many clinical studies address the ways diffuse large piece lymphoma progressively impacts the body. This information uh, helps us to identify superior intervention methods, which at the end of the day, contribute uh, to us to an increased patient life expectancy and better quality of life. Um, now, moving on, moving on to managing uh, treatment side effects symptoms, um, discomfort and pain, um, I can tell that you know it, it, it really depends on the on the type of treatment that the patient is getting, uh, whether the patient is getting. Uh, chemotherapy alone or uh, chemo and immunotherapy or, or, or targeted therapy, um, there are always what we call hematologic versus non-hematologic side effects. So as far as those that we call non-hematologic side effects, uh, we, we pay attention to uh, gastrointestinal symptoms, things like uh, nausea, vomiting, uh, constipation or, or diarrhea. And there are all these medications that we can, one, uh, use as a uh, pre-medication when we are delivering the um, treatment, uh, and two, provide the patient uh, with those medications so they have it on hand um, to use it as a, as a kind of like a, a breakthrough a medication or in anticipation for that symptom to happen. Um, we look at... Uh, instances uh, where uh, 
patient may the patients may experience fatigue uh we we almost always uh recognize the importance of exercise as a way to counteract uh the fatigue uh we've seen a number of treatments that uh can cause alopecia that's not uncommon uh we almost always uh recommend to consider uh cooling caps as a way to mitigate this uh toxicity or side effect um as far as infections uh we uh recommend hand hygiene you know um the use of prophylactic uh antibiotics and or antivirals uh that uh as as i say uh are used in an effort to decrease the chance uh, of an infection to pop up but not with the idea of treat an infection uh when i'm uh talking about my uh patients with diffuse large b cell lymphoma of uh an upcoming infection or or uh a side effect that may happen i always tell them that i have this conversation before the pandemic and after the pandemic uh just uh speaking of of arch of this this type of treatment uh cycles every 3 weeks and we all know that um the uh critical days are around second week so back in the days i used to tell the patients to be really careful uh kind of like uh, trying to uh isolate themselves and not uh, not to a uh uh beyond on 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 places where where there's a uh a bunch of people uh you know uh church or grocery stores things like that uh now with the pandemic the conversation believe it or not goes uh smoother uh because uh cancer patients are very meticulous and very careful about uh isolation and uh social distancing and and the use of of the mask um moving on uh peripheral neuropathy is that sensation of uh tingling in hands and or feet um that can be sometimes painful uh we recognize the importance of the side effect there are different medications that we can use to mitigate this and also there are uh strategies uh for us to uh manipulate to some extent the treatment uh in uh, uh favor of the patient to decrease uh this um side effect uh as far as pain uh, of course there are medications of uh, uh different uh, potency so we really need to understand uh you know the uh, severity and the intensity of the pain so we can always titrate those medications um and finally as far as uh hematologic side effects uh we pay uh, special attention to to uh, three lines of cells here uh white cells red cells and platelets as far as uh white cells uh depending on, depending on on how low those white cells go uh we can always recommend something called a growth factor which is kind of like a, a booster that rescues the uh patient from uh the uh side effect of of the chemotherapy uh so the white cells basically will will go up or or will a uh uh rebound uh, faster or just in time to have another uh, cycle of chemotherapy um as far as uh, red cells and platelets uh there are uh 
critical thresholds uh, for us. And if we happen to face the instance where uh, the hemoglobin or the, you know, the red cells go below the threshold or the uh, platelets go below the threshold, we can always use uh, red cells or we can use uh, platelets uh, to be transfused to uh, help the patient through a journey of um, uh, chemotherapy. Um, moving on to uh, key questions about quality of life, uh, I can tell that, uh, you know, we always assess quality of life and there are very well uh, validated uh, questionnaires that usually cover uh, four, four functional states, um, the, the physical state, the emotional state, social state, and uh, cognitive uh, functioning. So there are different questions and then we basically um, give uh, a score to each question and that gives us an understanding of uh, the impact of quality uh, of life when the uh, patient is on chemotherapy. So uh, questions like, for instance, um, do you have any trouble doing strenuous activities? Uh, do you have any trouble taking a long walk? Do you have any trouble taking a short walk outside the outside of the house? Um, do you need help with eating, dressing, washing, uh, etc.? And then we score that the question and uh, end up uh, with, again, a, a good representation, a, a good idea of, of the impact of uh, chemotherapy on quality of life. That's on our end. Now, on the patient's end, there are essential questions to ask, questions that I try myself to uh, jump in advance, right? Uh, questions such as, you know, the type of information that we as providers use to make treatment recommendations or, uh, for instance, uh, what are the realistic goals of treatment? What are the chances that the patient can be cured? What are the chances of a long-term response with good quality of life? Uh, whether there are clinical trials available for uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, depending on uh, each particular scenario, um, uh, whether uh, the patient is going to be able to keep working, for instance, whether the patient can be keep taking care of a family uh, or travel or be around uh, young children. Uh, so those are the type of questions that, that the patient should consider to direct to the provider when speaking about the uh, uh, treatment needs and the uh, impact of, of treatment. Um, moving on to, uh, you know, telehealth and telemedicine appointments, technology, uh, and the list of questions, uh, this is kind of like universal, not, not just for, for diffuse large visa lymphoma, but but for the whole movement of, of uh, telemedicine as a tool for providers and for patients to, to keep staying in touch throughout the pandemic, right? So um, I, I, I recommend just to uh, verify the insurance coverage to, uh, you know, when, when ready for the uh, telemedicine appointment to uh, choose a good and private location to have that appointment. Um, to have a to have your device, you know, whether whether it's a laptop or a desktop or or, or just a cell phone, right? Uh, to have the device set up and ready. Um, to get the information ready. So 
uh, items like uh, uh, new prescriptions, information uh, about uh, the, the pharmacy, uh, name of the primary care physician, uh, have the uh, health insurance ID card ready, uh, you know, where there are changes in, in uh, medical history. Those type of things are always verified uh, before uh, the provider uh, jumps on the call. Um, try to write questions to ask before the appointment. Those are the questions that I previously uh, mentioned, you know. Um, but also, you know, in, includes uh, items such as, you know, uh, the type of diagnosis, uh, the staging, whether a second opinion is necessary or not, uh, treatment options, uh, logistics of the treatment, that's very important, and, and of course, expectations. Um, finally, it's, it's really useful to take notes during the call. Um, finally, uh, in speaking of scheduling follow-up care and appointments, um, it, it really depends on whether the patient is about to start treatment or on whether the patient is uh, within uh, the period of treatment or whether the patient has completed uh, therapy and now, oh, and, and now we have basically to, to place the patient on this surveillance uh, program. So where the patient, if the patient is on, on active treatment, almost always the uh, follow-up appointments will uh, fall on, uh, you know, every two or every three or every four weeks, depending on the duration of the uh, cycle of, of the medication that the provider is using, you know. Uh, there are there are uh, different medications, different cycles. So that the message is uh, there are different flavors, and and for as long as the provider is able to assess and reassess the patient before each cycle, it's okay. So roll of thumb, it's kind of like a uh, every three to four weeks, depending on therapy. Uh, and then if the patient is on surveillance already, um, typically uh, we're speaking of uh, five years on the long road. Uh, the very first two years are, are critical. Uh, we know as a provider that the benchmark as of now, it's kind of like a, a two years. So the way we go is uh, clinical assessment every uh, three months, uh, year one. Uh, year two, we can do every three to six months and then uh, year uh, two and beyond, we can go every six months to a year, and I'm just speaking of clinical follow-up. So we we pay special attention, you know, to symptoms, physical exam, and and lab work. But the fourth piece of information that we have to uh, assess, specifically within the very first two years, uh, is imaging. And imaging we recommend every six months within the first two years. Those are the four pieces of information that, that we assess in surveillance. Again, symptoms, physical exam, laboratory workup, and imaging. And with that, um, I think I'm done with my 15 minutes, uh, Caroline. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Diaz. That was very comprehensive, really outstanding. and really um, providing our participants lots of detail in terms of um, 
of their um, treatment and um, and all the questions they should be asking the doctor in terms of follow-up care. So thank you so much. Um, and um, I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care services, and then we're going to so get your questions ready because then we're going to start taking questions from all of you. Um, um, and um, so I just want to say a few words. Cancer Care is a national organization. It's a nonprofit organization. And we provide services to people throughout the United States. And um, we have a hope line. It's a telephone number that people can call um, and speak to oncology social workers. We have about 35 oncology social workers on staff. And people, when they call that number, our hope line number, our 800 number, they immediately are connected to an oncology social worker. And usually people have a specific question or concern that they bring up with their social worker, um, with the social worker they speak to, and then the social worker goes over with them in addition to meeting that need, all the services that we can offer them. So what are those services? So we offer both um, practical and financial assistance um, and um, also support services. And what do support services consist of? So we do offer online support groups. Um, we also offer um, a chance for people to talk with um, an oncology social worker about their concerns and questions. Um, in addition, we also offer a number of different types of uh, wellness workshops that people participate in. And in addition to that, we also offer, of course, these workshops. And we also have a number of publications that are available to all of you on, on our website. In addition to that, we also do have a website where people can access um, information um, both about these programs that we offer. These workshops occur about 75 of them per year on different topics and um, on also um, managing different treatment side effects and also a lot of different topics. We've done a lot of programs on COVID, specifically guidelines around COVID. Um, we've also done programs on uh, issues around caregiving. And I should say that our support groups are really interesting in the sense that people often like an online support group because um, it addresses the needs of people uh, with different types of cancer, but it also addresses uh, people, uh, people's concerns at different points in their lifestyle, so life, life uh, plan. So we have programs for young adults, for middle-aged adults, for older adults, for caregivers, um, for partners. For spouses. So we really have the gamut of support groups that people can choose from. Um, and they run in different cycles, and so therefore um, they're available and people really find them very helpful. They're also not time specific, so people can listen to them at any time of the day. Um, and um, that's also very attractive to people as it's a national program. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask all of you to. Um, uh, I'm going to ask, first of all, Dee Tamara to explain to you how to cure for questions, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web, please submit your questions by clicking Ask a Question. Okay, and we have a number of questions for our online participants. 
Um, and so I'm going to uh, take, um, I'll take some of those questions because we just have so many of them. So I'm going to ask our first question. Um, so um, the first question, and this one will be for Dr. Um, Diefenbach. Are there a list of laboratory panels or values that would give insight into a patient having tumor lysis from their chemotherapy? And if you could explain what tumor lysis is. Sure, I think that's a very good question. So tumor lysis is both a, a challenge and a good problem to have. It basically means when your tumor cells die very quickly, and that can put stress on your kidneys, and that's more of a problem in aggressive lymphomas and when you have a lot of lymphoma in your body. It really only happens in the first cycle of treatment, so it's only something you have to worry about with your first treatment. Um, your doctor often gives you a medicine called allopurinol before you start treatment or on your first day of treatment, and this is a medicine that actually protects your kidneys from tumor lysis. If we have patients we think are at risk of tumor lysis, we'll have them come back. We might split their chemo into two days or have them come back 24 to 48 hours after chemo, and then we check their kidney function. We check their electrolytes, so we look at their calcium, their magnesium, their phosphorus. We look at something called uric acid, which is a measure of, um, of a compound um, urate that the tumor cells let, give off when they're dying. And um, those, uh, those labs can help us see um, if somebody is going into tumor lysis. We use allopurinol prophylaxis against tumor lysis. There are other medications we can give if someone's in tumor lysis particularly a drug called Rispericase, which is IV. Allopurinol is a pill. So if someone, in, if someone is thought to have a high risk of tumor lysis, they might even be treated with cycle one in the hospital. But the good news with tumor lysis is that it's, if you're looking for it, it's very manageable, and that it means that the tumor cell is very sensitive to the chemotherapy and dying quickly. The other thing to know is even if patients don't have tumor lysis, Often they'll have more pain in cycle one than they will in later cycles because the tumor cell dying, even if it's not lysing too fast, can cause a lot of pain and inflammation. So having a lot of having more pain and inflammation in the first cycle after chemo is not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't mean the tumor is growing. It can actually mean the tumor is dying. Excellent. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. That was um, a wonderful question and. Um, Wonderful answers to the question. Thank you. Great question. Great answer. Um, and um, so this is a question for Dr. Diaz. What is the significance of tumor of a tumor being in an organ or gland but not found in lymph nodes at time of diagnosis? That's a that's a good question, Caroline. So it again going back to the staging. Uh, it depends on whether the tumor is found on only one organ or uh, aside uh, other different locations, right? This is what we call extranodal disease. And we, we've seen diffuse large basal lymphoma, you know, for instance, uh, in, in the middle of the chest, you know, in the uh, mediastinum or uh, in the uh, testicles, you know, uh, liver, uh, kidneys. Um, there are a, uh, calculators that are able uh, to tell us 
uh, whether this is good or bad, but almost always when we're speaking about uh, kidney and adrenal glands, uh, this uh, uh, portends uh, a poor prognosis, I may say. So it's important in the sense that uh, we need to establish a clean blanket at the very beginning so we know where we start before we uh, start the treatment. And then as, as time uh, go by, uh, we need to uh, reassess and make sure that those specific sites where the disease was found uh, were uh, basically able to be treated uh, by the uh, uh, by the treatment that we that we recommended. That's the importance of of the uh, extranormal disease. It's 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 a matter of of, of prognosis, if you will. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um that um, response, Dr. Diaz. Thank you so much. Um, so um, we have another question from um, one of our participants, um, and this one is for Dr. Diefenbach. It's a, um, a bit of a longer question, um, so I'm going to read the question, and we understand that we can't provide a consult, but perhaps give this participant some um, guidelines. Um, so the question is, could you elaborate on the factors after success or failure of CAR T-cell therapy? We recently learned that my father's CAR T-cell therapy is stalled because the cells from his apheresis did not develop properly. Are there other possibilities for failure we should be aware of as he considers other CAR T-cell uh, therapy options versus clinical trials? So um, there are many reasons why someone's product might not uh, develop uh, after collection. It could be that, that the person just has had too much chemo and doesn't have enough cells. It could be there was a problem with the, with the medium on the back end uh, that they're developing the cells in. So you may want to ask a little bit more about why the cells didn't develop. Um, if you can't collect or your dad can't collect adequate uh, cells for CAR T cells, then there are some clinical trials of what we call allogeneic or off-the-shelf CAR T cells that don't require your own cells to be collected. So you could look into those clinical trials. We have one open here at NYU um, of an off-the-shelf CAR that you don't need to collect your own cells for. And then there are also trials of bispecific antibodies. Those are the antibodies that have one arm that connects to the tumor cell and one arm that connects to the immune system. And those look like they also have a high level of activity whether they're as good as CAR T cells uh, or slightly less good but safer, they look very, very active. So if your father has not had one of those and, um, and cannot collect for CAR T cell, that's another option for him. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and for Dr. Um, Diaz, I have no evidence of disease for two years now from DLBCL. With stage four, is there a magic number of years of no evidence of disease that constitute a cure? Um, that's that's a million dollar question. So uh, the more we look into the data of diffuse large B cell lymphoma, we understand the importance of uh, ARCHOP, a therapy that's been out in the market for over 20 years and still being able to cure uh, the majority of patients, right? Um, but in order for uh, a medication to make a difference compared to ARCHOP, uh, we need to see a lot of cases 
in order to make uh, a meaningful difference. That's why we use nowadays what we call progression-free survival. Um, it's, it, it's a surrogate, right? Uh, two years is the benchmark. And all that I can tell is that, and, and this is the way I literally tell the patients, you know, uh, two years is the benchmark. If you make it through two years, the, the, the odds are on the favor of the patient. When we see diffuse large B-cell lymphoma relapsing, for the most portion, it happens within the first two years. I'm not saying the patients uh, cannot relapse after two years. It happens, but it happens more often within the first two. So going back to the question, uh, if at two years there's evidence of what we call complete response, um, uh, I think that's good. And I think it's only a matter of time uh, for us to keep demonstrating with uh, continuous assessment that that's still the case in year three, year four, year five, uh, and then potentially think about uh, curability. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Diefenbach. Um, Um, why, so why is chemotherapy given with ritux, rituxin for treating DLBCL? Oh, that's a very good question. So um, rituxin was really the first drug to come along. It came along in the early 80s, um, and it was like the first new exciting drug to come along in, in DLBCL since the early chemotherapy age with DaVita, you know, and all. Well, chemotherapy was first invented, and what the data showed, and this was first looked at in elderly patients and then applied to all patients, is that rituxin has activity by itself in large cell, but not a lot. And chemo works, but when you add rituxin and chemo, they have something called synergy, so that both of them work better together than either of them work by themselves. And rituxin has synergistic effects with other chemotherapies as well, so that even if you um, don't have a complete remission for RCHOP, you can put the rituxin again into second-line chemotherapy and get the same kind of synergy. So it seems that targeting CD20 immunologically enhances the ability of chemotherapy to do its killing, and that's why these two drugs work so well together. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Good, good question. Great answer. Okay. And another question, um, and this is for Dr. Um, Diaz. What is the connection between diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and Epstein-Barr virus? An Epstein-Barr virus, you said? Yes, yes, Epstein-Barr virus. Well, is uh, there a diffuse yeah, well, uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, uh, it's, it's very uh, a heterogeneous disease. So we are not speaking here of only one beast. Uh, there are, there are uh, different types of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, uh, more than 10, uh, if I'm not mistaken, as per the uh, WHO 2016, um, and there are specific subset of a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is being cat uh, categorized as uh, uh, EBV-positive, Epstein-Barr virus-positive. Um, there's a linkage, okay? Um, and uh, when you look at the uh, uh, ways how uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma uh, can start, we always uh, interrogate the, you know, the fact of uh, viruses in the background, we always look at a uh, 
hepatitis, HIV, and Epstein-Barr is, is one of those. Um, this is not cause and effect. It's, it's more uh, kind of like a, a, uh, a linkage in between a virus and the development of, of diffuse large B cell lymphoma. That's, that's kind of like the uh, um, relationship. Uh, but as I said, uh, there's, there's a completely different subset of diffuse large B cell lymphoma being EBV positive. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And a question for another question um, for Dr. Diefenbach. Um, what other clinical manifestations may help me to diagnose diffuse large B cell lymphoma? So all of the symptoms for any lymphoma are very nonspecific. With diffuse large B cell lymphoma, many patients have this picked up incidentally when they're being looked at for something else. But the most common symptom is generally having a swollen lymph node that doesn't uh, doesn't resolve. So swollen lymph nodes are probably the number one um, symptom. And then um, sometimes patients with diffuse large B cell lymphoma may also have what we call constitutional symptoms, which is like fevers chills, night sweats, or weight loss. These can go with the lymph node, or they can be um, the presenting symptoms, and the patient might not have a lymph node. So these are the most common um, symptoms. You, you know, in, in other lymphomas, rash or itching can be a symptom sometimes, um, and just a general feeling of, of malaise or unwellness. But you can see that none of these are, are symptoms that scream out lymphoma as opposed to something else. Um, so I would say, you know, most of the time it's um, you have these symptoms and you get a scan and there are swollen lymph nodes or you feel a swollen lymph node that sort of that brings a diagnosis of lymphoma. Excellent. Thank you. And I'm going to ask our speakers, each of you, to just provide a takeaway for our participants of um, what you'd like them to take away from today's program. I'm going to start with Dr. Diefenbach. So I think the one thing I'll emphasize to all of you here is that lymphoma is a treatable and potentially curable disease. We know a tremendous amount about lymphoma biology and we're learning more all the time. There are exciting new drugs on the horizon that will hopefully um, not only that are not only um, with a different side effect, uh, different side effects than standard chemo, but also the ability to control a disease that didn't respond to chemo. And hopefully, um, over the next 10 or 20 years, we're going to be curing many, many, many more people with uh, diffuse large B cell and other lymphomas. Excellent. That's very inspiring. Thank you. And Dr. Um, Diaz, if you'd like to provide a takeaway as well. So my, my, my two cents, Caroline, um, always consider a clinical trial. Always consider a clinical trial. It is, it is the way for us to, one, uh, understand better the disease, and to help to keep developing um, newer medications. Uh, chemotherapy has been out in the market for over 50 years, I may say, um, and, you know, newer medications, newer molecules are always more refined, less toxic, and, and we can always see how uh, they can uh, provide uh, deeper responses and perhaps more responses. That's, that's what I have to say. Well, thank you so much. And that is a wonderful plug for clinical trials and their importance. Thank you so much and want everyone to, to take that away with you. Um, now, we have many more questions in queue. And um, I know we could spend the next hour on this program, if not more. 
but we did say this would be an hour workshop. And so I do want to get back to all of you who didn't get to ask a question or have a question yet to ask. For those of you who've asked a question or have a question that you'd like to ask, please, um, uh, please uh, consult with your healthcare team, even if you asked a question, because they know you the best. They know your records. And we hope the information you receive today will help you as you talk with your healthcare team, will help you to ask more informed questions. So please um, go back to your healthcare team. And most importantly, we would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with diffuse large B cell lymphoma. We want you to now know that you're part of a community of support. And your healthcare team consists of many, many different members. Um, of course, your, your physician, of course, but also um, it includes also um, the oncology nurse, oncology social worker, financial specialist, um, all these different specialists on your team, financial advisor, patient navigator, all of these members of the team are there to help you. And of course, you always can call Cancer Care as well to talk with one of our staff for some of the psychosocial support that you might find very useful as well during this time. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.